On March 12th, 1036, the sun darkened with a frightful and horrible appearance. The luminaries of the heavens turned gloomy and black, and the whole sky was stretched out like a vault in darkness. The sun became blackened at midday, and all the stars appeared as they would in the middle of the night. The darkness and gloom grew intense. All creatures cried out together, and all the mountains and hills resounded. The mountains and all the rocks shaken to their foundations trembled. The vast large sea, the Mediterranean, moving back and forth billowed, and all mankind mourned and wept. It happened that when mankind saw all this, it was horror-struck with fear as if dead. Frightened by the horrible omen, they were altogether stupefied and horror-struck. At the same time, the king of Armenia and the patriarch sent for a holy man known as John, so that they might learn from him the interpretation of this extraordinary omen. When they found him, he was in terrible agony because of the profuseness of his weeping and the heavy groans which arose from his mouth no one dared ask him anything, for they saw that he was in deep mourning and tremendous grief, and was ceaselessly shedding tears and beating his chest. When the holy man saw all those who had come, opening his mouth, he began to speak while groaning and shedding many tears of a coming apocalypse. He said, My dear children, all this will take place in the final days since Satan has been released from his thousand-year confinement in which Christ kept him through his crucifixion. Nevertheless, there will appear true believers in Christ who will stand against Satan in combat. Henceforth, there will take place invasions by the infidels, the abominable forces of the Turks against the Christian nations, and the whole land will be consumed by the sword. All the nations of the Christian faithful will suffer through famine and enslavement. Many regions will become uninhabited, the power of the saints will be removed from the land, and many churches will be destroyed to their foundations. The land will be thrown into confusion by wicked nations. Bloody dew will cover the plants of the fields, and the land will be ravaged by the sword and enslavement for sixty years. Then, a valiant nation, called the Franks, will rise up. With a great number of troops, they will capture the holy city of Jerusalem, and the holy sepulchre, which contained God, will be freed from bondage. And welcome to History of the Uchmer, episode 1.10. An inconvenient truth, but like medieval. Our opening today was adapted from, once again, the work of Matthew of Edessa. The people of the 11th century knew something was wrong. As famine and violence grew and made life hell, they found explanations in eschatological thinking. And we might not think that the world ended, but for many of those living through the century, their lives were so upended that it might as well have. Our lives are all shaped by forces far beyond our control. Many of us in 2021 might be far removed from agricultural practices, but we all eat. 
and we're all dependent on food processes that themselves are only possible in certain ranges of temperature and certain weather conditions. Apocalyptic predictions for what's going to happen as global temperatures continue to rise are dime a dozen. And that's not what we're going to talk about today. Because the global climate has always been in flux. And it turns out that a lot of what we've been talking about for the last nine episodes, and a lot of what caused the holy man John to see the end days coming, was linked to these volatile changes. The focus of today's episode is going to be different in a few different ways. Firstly, this is a departure from our more narrative-driven episodes. Today we'll be focusing on environmental history, but also talking a bit about the study of history itself, historiography. That means we won't be following a strict chronological order or anything like that, and the episode will be more of a conversation with some of these ideas. The second thing is that in previous episodes, I've always used multiple sources, various different books to try to get a well-rounded picture. However, today, I'll be relying almost entirely on one source, historian Ronnie Ellenblom's The Collapse of the Eastern Mediterranean, Climate Change and the Decline of the East, 950 to 1071. There's a good reason for this, and that is that there simply aren't very many sources on this subject. Environmental history is a relatively new field, while narrative histories go back millennia. Approaching history from an environmental perspective became a thing only a few decades ago. As we've increasingly had to deal with the effects of anthropogenic or human-generated climate change, the models we use to measure the impact have also served to explain past phenomena. This has gone hand-in-hand hand with the rise of a more long-term focused history, such as economic history, for example. Economic and climate pressures are like water-eroding rock. They are incredibly powerful, but they act over very long periods of time. This focus on long-term processes is commonly associated with a phrase popularized by French historian Fernand Braudel, la longue durée. Literally, the long term or long duration. These kinds of long-term views contrast sharply with concepts such as the great man theory, for example. Great in this context isn't necessarily positive. It just refers to men who exert a large amount of influence on the events of the world. And in its most extreme form, great man history attributes all events to the personal characteristics and decisions of individuals, primarily men because throughout most of recorded history, particularly Western history, positions of power have been limited to mainly men. For example, a work of great man history would explain the end of the Roman Republic and beginning of the Roman Empire as a biography of Augustus Caesar. While the explicit concept of great man history became popular during the 19th century, we can see similar attitudes throughout all of history, going back to Herodotus and his focus on heroes and their epic adventures. This kind of history that focuses on the decisions of powerful people, even if it's fallen out of favor in academia, is still popular today. That's for a few reasons. One is that for most people, knowledge of history is usually provided by their schooling, and school curriculums generally tend to present a type of history that reinforces cultural ideas, often centered around figures like the Founding Fathers or Kings or civil rights leaders. This allows for history to be given a face, the same face you see on your money or on the statues outside your capitol building. The second reason is that narrative history is maybe more intuitive or easier to follow for most people. This is partially because history itself comes from a storytelling tradition. In fact, the word story is just a shortened version of history, 
And in many languages, the two words are the same. In Spanish, una historia is a story, and la historia, the story, means history. The same is true for French, une histoire et l'histoire. This very podcast has also been primarily a narrative history, and some of the perspectives given by great man theory have been present. After all, when we talked about the demographic changes in 11th century Anatolia, we did so by focusing on the clash between a Roman emperor and a Seljuk sultan. I did, however, try to position these men as, in the end, subject to greater, long durée, pressures, such as the loss of legitimacy in the Roman political system and the ecological needs of Alp Arslan's Turkmen soldiers. I prefer to view these great men, quote-unquote, more like poker players. Yes, their decisions impact the game, but even the best poker player can have a run of bad luck, while the worst player might get royal flush after royal flush. In the end, we all play the cards we're dealt, no matter if we're emperors or podcast hosts. To stretch my metaphor a bit further, today we'll be looking less at the players and more at the cards. What was going on that influenced the decisions of so-called great men like Al-Hakim and the Giscar and Tugrobeg? What cards were they dealt? So we turn to environmental history. Like I said, I'm going to be relying heavily on Ronnie Ellenblum's book. And the main idea is right there in the title. Collapse. What do we mean by that word? Ellenblum points out that there are two main schools of thought. The overshoot and collapse theory and the resilience theory. The overshoot and collapse theory is best exemplified by the work of the historian Jared Diamond, although he also goes by the title anthropologist and ornithologist and a lot of stuff. I'm going to keep calling him a popular historian. He talks a lot about collapse in his aptly titled 2005 book, Collapse. But similar ideas are also present in the book that first brought him to prominence, Guns, Germs, and Steel. He defines collapse as, quote, a drastic decrease in human population size and or political slash economic slash social complexity over a considerable area for an extended time. So basically, shit hits the fan, folks die, and they start to live more simple lives. Diamond is a controversial figure. He's a popular historian, like I said. So the fact that he's addressing the plebs means, one, he's going to have to dumb things down and be a bit reductivist. Always a hotbed for criticism, that. And two, he's very visible, and his work impacts the viewpoints of many people, also inviting criticism. In 2010, an entire collection of essays criticizing Diamond's work on collapse was released. It's called Questioning Collapse. Diamond and the rest of the Overshoot and Collapse squad see collapse as fundamentally related to a finite set of resources that are then mismanaged by elites, and depleted, leading to catastrophe. Diamond, of course, also uses these examples to lecture about the current blasé attitude towards climate change and the irresponsible use of non-renewable resources. So his analysis of historical events is closely tied to the changes he would like to see in modern society. A little bit of a dangerous line to tread. On the other hand, the resilient school of thought avoids talking about collapse at all. Where Diamond sees catastrophe, they see transformation. Societies are never erased completely. Instead, they adapt and evolve in their new environment. This is very longue durée. In the aforementioned Jared Diamond diss track, Questioning Collapse, the editors, Patricia A. McCanny and Norman Yaffe, state, quote, 
when closely examined, the overriding human story is one of survival and regeneration. Certainly, crises existed, political forms were altered, but rarely did societies collapse in an absolute and apocalyptic sense. Our guide today, Ellenblom, seeks a synthesis of these two views. Basically, he's working from the idea that collapse does occur, even if its prevalence is a bit overstated, and many of the effects are indeed ephemeral, and they often end up dissipating. However, the societies that come out of an environmental collapse are often transformed in ways that can affect them long after the crisis itself has passed. We started this season with a question. How did the Crusaders succeed in creating kingdoms in what had once been the provinces of powerful empires and sultanates? We can view this event, the First Crusade, as a product of Eastern Mediterranean collapse. In a long-term perspective, the Crusaders were just the latest occupants in a vacuum created by political instability, exacerbated, if not exactly caused, by environmental collapse. What's also worth noting is that Crusades and the Utremer states were not a permanent fixture. They were ejected after three centuries, and the Levant was reabsorbed into empires that were successors to the ones that had dominated it before. First, the Mamluk Sultanate, inheritors of the Egyptian Fatimid Caliphate, and then later, the Ottoman Empire, based out of Constantinople-Istanbul, inheritors of the Roman Empire. Things returned to the status quo, at least from a very surface-level sort of view. So, what was this collapse? Well, let's start by taking this event and putting it in a box, both in space and time. Geographically, the collapse was limited to the eastern and southern portion of the Mediterranean. As Ellenblum puts it, we can imagine a line extending from Tunisia in the southwest, bisecting Italy and cutting through the Balkans. To the north of the line, people thrived. In fact, Europe was entering the medieval optimum, a warm period that would spur the development of Latin Christendom. But to the south of the line, there was a noticeable uptick in the rates of cold snaps and droughts. These created famines and led to the spread of both diseases and nomadic groups. Groups like the Pechenegs, the Seljuk and the Turkmen, and the Banu Hilal, in their search for fertile lands, made sure that even those regions that weren't directly affected were still subject to destabilizing raids and invasions. As for temporal boundaries, there were some severe freezes recorded in regions like Armenia and Mesopotamia going as far back as the 8th century, but things really started to intensify in the 10th century, and they would only get worse in the 11th century. We'll be focusing on the window of time Ellenblom has provided us, 950 to 1072. One crucial aspect is that this was an increase in frequency of these events, not a century-long catastrophe. This had a few consequences. First, many of the events appeared unconnected to those experiencing them. What do you know about the winter of the year of 1905? Second, a long-lasting event would have fundamentally changed the way people lived. They might have permanently left certain regions or changed their agricultural practices entirely. A modern comparison, if you'll permit me that, might be the reaction to anthropogenic climate change versus the reaction to COVID. The measures that have been taken to combat COVID are extreme in the short term, but that's because we see one immediate crisis before us. Whereas even though we can see an increasing number of irregular, destabilizing weather patterns and events all stemming from human-generated climate change, adaptation has come at a glacial pace. 
Hell, slower than the glaciers, which are melting much quicker than we're acting. Similarly, the inhabitants of the eastern Mediterranean would escape one catastrophe, attempt to put their lives back together, and then find themselves once again in crisis. The effect was less dramatic, but perhaps more fundamental, as long-lasting political instability set in and warped the relationship individuals had with the polities around them. The collapse seems to have relented some by 1072. If you recall, this was the last year of drought in Egypt, but the first dominoes had already tipped over. Two years later, in 1074, Badr al-Jamali would succeed in bringing order, but the Fatimid Caliphate would never be the same again. And you could make the argument that by excising all power from the Caliph, Badr al-Jamali essentially ended the Caliphate. At the very least, he left the door open for Saladin to officially pull the plug. 1072 also saw the deaths of Romanos Diogenes, victim of a hack job blinding, and Al-Barslan. The Roman Empire entered into total crisis. We'll get back to that and the Seljuk Empire only held on thanks to the continued presence of Alparslan's vizier, Nizam al-Mulk, but he wouldn't always be around. Another thing we'll have to come back to. In Sicily, 1071 saw the formal creation of the County of Sicily. The Pope had named Giscar future Lord of Sicily back in 1059, but with the capture of Palermo in 1072, the Normans controlled enough of the island to actually claim the territory as theirs. 1071 was also the year the Normans took Bari on the Italian peninsula, ejecting the Roman Empire once and for all. In short, the dominoes were tumbling. They didn't have to lead to the First Crusade, but they were definitely leading somewhere. For the rest of this episode, let's take a look at the two states that could be said to have suffered the most from this environmental collapse. The Roman Empire in the northern sector of the eastern Mediterranean, and the Fatimid Caliphate in the southern sector. Let's start with Egypt. The most vital thing to remember about Egypt is just how goddamn agriculturally rich it was. The Nile provided the agricultural surplus that allowed for the building of the pyramids, for the creation of the hieroglyphs that would evolve into the Arabic and Hebrew abjads, the Greek and Cyrillic alphabets, and, of course, the Latin alphabet used in English. Egypt as a source of extreme wealth was just an indisputable fact for millennia. Egypt also exported this wealth. Trade with Egypt for grain was essential to offsetting famine elsewhere. The reason for this is that the rainfall patterns that govern harvest yields in the rest of the Mediterranean have no influence in Egypt. The Nile is fed by rivers that collect the rainfall of eastern African monsoons. These are two independent systems, and the chance for both of them to fail at the same time is incredibly low. When Octavian, soon to become first citizen Augustus Caesar, incorporated Egypt as a province, he ensured that the newborn Roman Empire had a buffer to whatever ecological crises might strike elsewhere. The empire could ensure the movement of grain to troubled areas and keep the entire Mare Nostrum tied to the imperial infrastructure. What's more, the sheer amount of grain allowed for cities like Rome and later Constantinople to balloon to truly enormous sizes. The whole of the Mediterranean reached population levels that wouldn't be matched until modernity. So to say that the Nile was important is a bit of an understatement. But it did fail on occasion. The bureaucracy that developed around the Nile is an institution that stretches back thousands of years into prehistory. This bureaucracy knew the exact measurements of water flow that indicated a good harvest, and the measurements that spelled doom and disaster. In the first century AD, 
Pliny the Elder says a rise of 14 cubits ensures plentiful harvests, but under 12 cubits is bad news bears. A cubit is about half a millimeter, so these are pretty specific numbers. These measurements changed and were updated over time, as silt built up on the riverbed. A thousand years later, 17 or 18 cubits were needed. To offset the famine that developed when the Nile rose too little or too much, grain was stockpiled. This is an aspect of resilience. The bureaucracy knew that lean years came, and they planned ahead. Resilience could also come through cultural practices and myth. On Sahel Island, located in the Nile River, there is a block of granite known as the Famine Stella. Carved into the rock in Egyptian hieroglyphics is the tale of a famine during the reign of the pharaoh Djoser and his chancellor Imhotep. For any Brendan Fraser or Rachel Weiss fans out there, yes, this is that Emotep. The famine, which occurred circa 2700 BC, lasted seven years. Any of you familiar with uh, an Abrahamic faith should recognize that number. If you open your copy of the Bible, for example, to Genesis, you can read the tale of Joseph and the Pharaoh. One day, as the story goes, the pharaoh had a dream. In the dream, he was standing by the Nile, and he saw seven cows, plump and well-fed. But they were followed by seven starving cows, skin and bone. The pharaoh watched as the starving cows devoured the fat ones. This first dream was soon followed by a second one, where he saw seven scorched and thin heads of grain swallowing up seven ripe heads of grain. He was obviously a bit freaked out, and uh, someone told him there was a young Hebrew named Joseph who could interpret the dream for him. So he called up Joseph and had him do some biblical Jungian analysis. In the Pharaoh's dream, Joseph foresaw first seven years of abundance, and then seven years of famine that would so devastate the land that any memory of the years of abundance would be purged. Apparently convinced of Joseph's bona fides, the pharaoh put him in charge of all of Egypt. So when the seven years of abundance came, Joseph traveled throughout the land and collected grain, storing it up in immeasurable quantities. And then, quote, When the seven years of abundance in the land of Egypt came to an end, the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. And although there was famine in every country, there was food throughout the land of Egypt. When extreme hunger came to all the land of Egypt and the people cried out to the Pharaoh for food, he told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do whatever he tells you. When the famine had spread out all over the land, Joseph opened up the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. And every nation came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, because the famine was severe all over the earth. Similar tales of seven-year famines are found in the Sumerian Epic of Gilgamesh and other Egyptian sources. This number seven seems arbitrary at first. The fact that it's common to all these stories seems to indicate that it was chosen for traditional reasons. Who even knows if they're talking about one event or multiple different events? And who knows if these events happen as recorded? The famine Stella, for example, is not a contemporary document. It was carved thousands of years later. The inscriptions are as distant from the time they talk about as I am from Julius Caesar. After thousands of years and story built on top of story for countless generations, seven-year famines must have seemed a common literary trope. 
though Joseph and his wisdom were not forgotten, the specificity of seven years certainly was. As Galadriel says, history became legend, legend became myth, and some things that should not have been forgotten were lost. Between 300 and 900 AD, over a period of 600 years, nine events of drought in the Nile Valley are recorded. Seven lasted for one year each, and two lasted for two years. That's 11 years of drought over six centuries. Not bad, right? But the Egyptians were poorly prepared for what would come next. The following century, from 950 to 1072, saw 26 years of drought. In fact, from 1052 to 1072, the same 11 years of drought that had once been spread out over six centuries were concentrated in a period of two decades. The first drought, from 1052 to 1054, lasted four years. And ten years later, the final event, the Great Calamity, Al-Shida al-Uzma, from 1065 to 1072, lasted seven years. During this time, Egypt was transformed. In the early 10th century, Egypt was in the hands of the Ikshidid dynasty, a Sunni dynasty that had, like so many others, broken away from the Abbasid Caliphate. And then, drought struck. In 949, there was one year of drought. Manageable, but still a burden on the stockpiled grain. Four years later, there was another drought. Still manageable, we're still good. However, in 1063, a six-year drought began. For the natives, this was literally biblical. The Ikshidids were overthrown, and as the famine came to a close in 969, the Fatimid Caliph al-Muiz took the capital of Fustat and built his own city, Cairo, the Conqueror, right next to it. Egypt was an exporter, remember? And the nearby lands in Syria suffered from the lack of Egyptian grain. As a general rule of thumb, even if they aren't completely united, when Egypt is weak, the region of Syria-Palestine is vulnerable. In the same year the Fatimids took Egypt, 969, the Roman general, Michael Burtzis, took the city of Antioch from the Emirate of Aleppo. Now, you remember Burtzis, right? He was the one who was fired by Nikephoros Phokas, and then he and Nikephoros Phokas' uh, nephew decided to murder him, bearskin rug, uh, yeah, you remember. Back in Egypt, as soon as they took over, the Fatimids deliberately invoked the myth of Joseph and presented themselves as good administrators. They had access to grain from eastern Africa, which was not dependent on the Nile, so they were able to ship in food and firmly establish themselves among the people of Egypt. They then ensured that grain was appropriately distributed and stored for future periods of hunger. In 997, when they had to deal with their own first drought, they had enough stored to overcome it. These mid-10th century famines also marked the beginning of extreme religious persecution. 966 saw anti-Christian riots in Jerusalem, and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was set on fire and looted, as was the Church of Holy Zion. The Christian Patriarch of Jerusalem was murdered, and his body was tied to a pillar and immolated. This trend of famine and violence would continue. If you go back to episode 1.1, I single out the year 1004, as the moment when the mad Caliph al-Hakim changed and began to pass all sorts of strange laws and persecute religious minorities. 1004 was a year of drought. The first of al-Hakim's reign, and the second of Fatimid rule, coming only seven years after the drought of 997. A three-year drought began in 1007, 
and weeks after the Nile's measurements showed that 1009 would be another year of drought, Al-Hakim gave the order to destroy all the Christian churches in Egypt, including the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. There's no doubt in my mind that the hunger amped up religious tension, and in that light, the Mad Caliph starts to look less and less mad. No less murderous and cold-hearted, don't get it twisted, but his actions seem more like someone playing a bad hand than random religious fanaticism. Again though, I still don't get the dog killing. Maybe they were going to eat the dogs? It's not in the sources as far as I know. I'll have to look. I'll let you guys know if they eat the dogs. Crises continued throughout the following two decades until the 1030s. However, the Fatimids kept things from spiraling too far out of control, and they placed a good deal of emphasis on efficient administration of resources. Al-Hakim, for all his eccentricities, seems to have maintained political legitimacy. And then both his sister Sir al-Mulk and the amputated one Al-Jajarai were both very good at being the power behind the throne. By the 1050s though, famine once again reared its ugly head, and this time the Fatimid administration was not ready for it. Al-Jajarai was dead, and what was left was the institution he'd built around him, a bunch of bureaucrats trying to stay in work. And the Queen Mother Rasad was trying her best to follow in Sir al-Mulk's footsteps. She would never be as successful. I couldn't really find a good reason for this, that's why I didn't include one back in episode 1.8, but after ruminating it, I have a few theories. First, it was always going to be more difficult for a woman to make it to the top of the heap. Hell, we're in the supposedly enlightened futurist female year of 2021, how many women presidents are there compared to men? I'm truly shocked a black slave concubine couldn't fully consolidate power in 11th century Egypt. You want to talk poker? She got dealt a 2-7 offsuit and still managed to somehow bluff her way into taking the blinds. Second, the difference between Sit al-Mulk and Rasad was that Sit al-Mulk was born into power. Her father was the caliph. She grew up in Egypt and honed her skills for years. Rasad was a slave concubine who only became powerful when her husband slash owner, yuck, kicked the bucket and her kid became caliph. Sit al-Mulk had local allies. Rasad had to import her army to try to offset the local forces. Third, maybe given less famine and catastrophe, Rasad would have been able to build up her power, but she was not given that chance. It's not like the Fatimids did nothing. When scarcity drove the prices sky high, Al-Yazuri, Rasad's puppet vizier, went so far as to buy all the grain directly from merchants and then sell it to the people at a fixed price. But in the end, limited supply is limited supply. And well, during the famine of 1065 to 1072, civil war consumed the Fatimids. And when they came out of it, they were under the thumb of Badr al-Jamali. We turn to the Fatimids' northern twin now, the Roman Empire. We know the main arc by now. Basil II died in 1025 and left no true heirs, just his elderly brother and two childless nieces. The Macedonians, through the husband emperors, would hold on for a few decades more. And then the general Isaacios Komnenos would come to power. He would be followed by the entirely useless Constantinos Ducas, and then the ill-fated Romanos Diogenes. We've so far blamed the political instability for all the empire's woes. But truth be told, the Roman Empire frequently had bouts of instability. They were rarely as catastrophic as the 11th century. Much as in the Fatimid Caliphate, this instability was exacerbated by the effects of environmental disaster. For Byzantium, the crisis was felt less directly than Egypt. Instead, 
climate collapse around the edges of the empire would open up cracks and push horsebound invaders to fill in those spaces. We know these horsey boys already. The Pechenegs, the Normans, and most dangerous of all, the Seljuks and their Turkmen followers. Let's start by talking about the Pechenegs. In the 1030s, periods of extreme cold weather in the northern Balkans caused massive upheavals among the nomadic tribes of the steppe and turned previously peaceful nomads, such as the Pechenegs, as well as other Turkic groups, into freezing, starving, desperate migrants, more than willing to raid their southern neighbors for a bit of food. In episode 1.5, we saw how this placed intense pressure on the Byzantines. This pressure drained Roman resources, and to supply their soldiers, as well as hire mercenaries, they were forced to debase their coinage. During the reign of Basil II, their main currency, the Nomisma, was near pure gold, around 95%. By the time of Romanus Diogenes, it was only 75% gold. And it was with this hobbled economy that Romanus was expected to fend off the likes of Alparslan and Robert Giscar. Cold weather also exacerbated tensions in southern Italy and provided openings for the Normans to exploit. If you recall, the Normans of Italy first found work under the local Lombards, who they aided in various revolts against the Byzantines, later transforming local revolution into a hostile takeover by foreigners. One of the first Lombard revolts aided by Norman forces was in 1017, which was, surprise surprise, one of the coldest years on record. William of Apulia says the Italians were astounded by the fall of an extraordinary and up to then unprecedented quantity of snow, which killed the bulk of the wild animals and cut down trees, never to grow again. In 1017, this revolt was met with a powerful and stable empire. One of Basil's generals, Boioannis, had a free hand in suppressing the rebels, and the Byzantines continued to reign supreme. However, fast forward a few decades, and civilian emperors like Monomachos simply can't afford to place that kind of trust in generals. The fear of someone like Georgios Maniakis simply turning against the empire loomed over their heads. So southern Italy was lost. We will be returning to the Giscar in a few episodes' time. As I mentioned way back in episode 2, he ends up declaring war against the empire itself. But for now, the horsebound hat trick wouldn't be complete without the Seljuks and the Turkmen. The periods of extreme cold that caused mayhem in the western steppe also affected the eastern steppe. In 1027, extreme cold weather was reported throughout Iran and up into the steppe region of Transoxiana, home to the Oguz Yabgu state. Two years later, the Seljuks first appeared as a threat to the Ghaznavid dynasty of eastern Persia. As we explored back in episode 1.4, the exact origin of the Seljuks is difficult to work out and it's best to view the various Turkmen groups as being composed of different tribes and federations all in flux with one another as they seeped into the world of the Eastern Mediterranean and simultaneously created new identities. Elimblum describes three phenomena that played out between the 1020s and the 1050s that governed the behavior of the Turkmen. Phenomena one, the cold weather and associated famine pushed invasions of dislocated pastoralists. Again, back in episode 1.4, we explored the dual behavior of steppe nomads. They could be sheep herders, but when the going got tough, they got to raiding. Closely connected to that is phenomena two, violence. As the weather events grew more intense, the steppe tribes grew more and more destructive and violent. 
Conversely, in years when the weather was good and the sheep grew fat, plundering became less attractive for the nomads who had settled amongst the societies of Persia, Syria, Armenia, and Anatolia. On the flip side, phenomenon number three, when the extreme weather abated, both the influx of new steppe tribes from the north and the violence of the already present steppe tribes died down, allowing for the building of new states. The influx of new recruits meant that Tugro always had a powerful army, eager to pillage to stay alive, and the instability of the weather throughout Mesopotamia and Persia meant that they would constantly be on the move, spreading all around. The opening to episode 1.4 contains the following quote from Matthew of Edessa, the laces of their shoes were never untied, a poetic way of saying that they were always on the move. The conquest of Iran and Iraq that built the great Seljuk Empire was completed in fits and starts, pushed by the needs of Turkmen pastoralists when they'd had a lean year, and pulled in by the vacuum of political instability of states like the Ghaznavids and the Buyids, struggling to deal with famine themselves. The unplanned nature of this endeavor created an unstable environment, and as Tugrul entered into combat with al-Basasiri over Baghdad and the rest of Iraq, Drought and extremely cold winters led to famine, disease, and violence, making life truly hellish. Finally, Tugrul took Baghdad for a second time in 1059, and the next year, 1060, rain fell for a month straight. Tugrul was able to use the rain and the prosperity to consolidate his position. Perhaps if the rain had fallen a year earlier, al-Basasiri would have been able to hold on to the city. Doubtful, as uh, if you remember from episode 1.8, his Fatimid benefactor, Al-Ghazuri, had already been executed. In general, newcomers to the world of the eastern Mediterranean were favored by the environmental collapse. The Normans and the Seljuks were both able to use the instability of clunky empires to carve out their own little states. Not so little in the case of the Seljuks, but you know what I mean. As we move forward, we'll see how the new political reality created by the century of chaos continues to evolve. Next time, we'll be taking a look at the creation of a new Seljuk state, the Sultanate of Rum. Suleiman, great-grandson of Seljuk himself, is about to become a Sultan. Suleiman is from a new breed of Seljuks, generations removed from the steppe. He knew how the Romans worked and operated, and he would use that knowledge against them to turn their lands into his own little kingdom right next door to Constantinople. It's his kingdom and his son who will welcome, so to speak, the Frankish Crusaders. <laughs>